Transition. Religions do not exist. From Pierre de Cobotin to Auron Hubbard. It is time to draw our conclusions from the indications we have discussed about an anthropotechnic redescription of the religious, ethical and ascetic artistic phenomena. I will therefore return to the two main practice and mentality historical tendencies of the last century. The rise of the neo-athletic syndrome around 1900 and the explosion of informal mysticism regardless of whether it manifests itself privatissimi or in the network operations of psychotechnic sects. It is with reference to both of these that the hypothesis of the spectral return of religion can be rendered more precise. I will begin by using the example of the Neo-Olympic movement founded by Pierre de Coubertin to show how an undertaking initiated as a cult religion outgrew its religious design to become the most comprehensive organizational form for human behavior of effort and practice that could always be observed outside the worlds of work and war. Compared to the dimensions of the neo-Olympic sport cult, even the pilgrimages of the Middle Ages and the excesses of Spanish monastic culture in the 17th century, when a substantial part of the populace flooded the prison cells to rid themselves of their cells, by all available means. These are of a merely episodic character. Then, using the example of the Church of Scientology, founded by the science fiction author Lafayette Ron Hubbard, I will investigate what we can learn when a company for distributing well-known methods of auto-suggestion manages to expand into a worldwide psychagogic firm that claims to be a religion. I will present the conclusions in advance. The fate of Olympism and the business of the Scientological churches show that religion, as understood by those who exploit the notion, does not exist, and never has. Both Coubertin and Hubbard fell for a modern mirage whose examination gives insights into the fabrication and constitution of religion in general. Both wanted to be found or contribute to something that cannot be, and which therefore, once founded, inevitably transpires as something other than what its founders thought it should be, or should seek to become. Both founders made the same mistake in opposite ways. Actual Olympism refused to become the religion planned by de Coubertin, while the Scientology movement resists being viewed merely as the psychotechnic firm that it is in fact is. In the first step of analysing these two refusals, I will clarify the meaning of my claim that religion does not exist. What we are actually dealing with, on a scale whose measurement has scarcely begun, are variously misinterpreted anthropotechnic practice systems and sets of rules for moulding one's inward and outward behaviour. Under the shelter of such forms, the practising work on improving their global immune status, which both on European soil and in Asia, highlights the paradox of how destroying physical immunity has not infrequently been praised as the royal road to boosting metaphysical immunity, immortality. Recall St. Francis of Assisi's exercises of deliberate attrition for Brother Donkey, as he was wont to call his body, and certain 
Harris suicidal practices that brought notoriety to Tibetan and Mongolian Buddhism and Lamaism. Chiorin's All Gaul is Divided contains the following remarks under the heading Religion. Quote, Without the vigilance of irony, how easy it would be to found a religion, merely allow the Gorkas to collect around our loquacious trances. End quote. This note is instructive, for, despite its modern sarcasm, it testifies to a pre-modern understanding of the phenomenon known as religion. With his micro-theory of the genesis of religion from the commotion around ecstasy, Gioran, the son of an orthodox priest, continues the line of old European theories of supply. The two components, or raw materials, whose combination produces religion, are thus an ecstatic performance by an individual and a corresponding curiosity among the masses. The first naturally takes priority, as it contains the more precious element. If one further interprets Joran's observation, religion only comes about when the rare, the ecstatic offering, approaches the common, profane curiosity, and allows it to gather around it. It is plain that Joran here reproduces, albeit on a cruder level, the conviction of the classical monotheisms that it is ultimately God, and God alone, who provokes and permits the assemblages whose congealed form we call churches. He organises the assemblage by, as they say, revealing himself to humans. In typological terms, the supply-theoretical interpretation of the religious phenomenon corresponds to the Catholic position, insofar as the latter is based on a strictly hierarchical line of offer conveyance running from God to humans, from the priests to the laypersons. The primacy of the giver and the priority of the gift remain unassailable in this universe. The believers here appear exclusively on the taking side, like the hungry of a soup kitchen, in clericocratic times, the word of God was not simply a sublime gift. It was simultaneously the model of an offer one cannot refuse. That is why the most Catholic of the Catholics still insist on the Latin Mass today. It presents the diamond core of the religion of supply. It asks not what humans can understand, but rather what God wants to show. For the religion's followers, the most high is most present when the priest carries out his Latin mystery play, with his back to the congregation. Church Latin is the petrified form of the loquacious trances. Gioran indicates quite openly that he often found himself in states that would have induced more naive natures to take church-founding steps. Demand-theoretical interpretations of the religious phenomenon take us onto the soil of modernity. Here, to take up our image again, the crowd now needs, now takes precedence, and one asks oneself how best to meet the needs of the masses. Now there can no longer be any talk of permitting, from above, the common to be present at the appearances of the rare. Rather, it is a matter of giving the many what they want, or what they will want once they have been shown what they are entitled to expect. Those who wish to can see a democratic shift in this. Its consequence is the task of interpreting the assemblage as the demand and responding to it by offering an appropriate supply. To take up this position, one must read faith as the updated version of a disposition that is inherent in human existence. 
Aside from that, it is plain enough why the priority of the demand meet means that the supplying side must be flexible and refrain from adopting any threatening tone. This brings us into the field of Protestant practices, where summa summarum, the meeting of demands for a just God, an address for metaphysical needs, or a helper for a successful life, is the central concern. This applies less in empirical than in typological terms. However, early Protestantism, especially in its Puritan variety, loved the apocalyptic communications characteristic of heartily fist-waving religions of supply. In truth, the Reformation had got underway as a restoration of the offer theological motif against Catholic inefficiency. It showed its demand theoretical quality when the congregations changed into a religiously interested audience. Furthermore, modern Protestant theology, the work of Karl Barth, for example, is responsible for the most radical formulation of the supply principle, combined with the harshest rejection of the humanely and undogmatically dissolving religiosity of demand that had defined the situation since the 18th century. Barth had recognised Schleiermacher, the wooer of the educated among those who despised religion, as the master theologian of the religion of demand, or, worse still, the religion of talent, and devoted himself to opposing him as firmly as possible. It was the same Karl Barth who arrived at the thesis, unheard of in its time, that Christianity is not a religion, because religion is unbelief. He had the right idea, but made the wrong point, and presented the most unsuitable of all possible justifications, that the word of God strikes through the fabric of cultural machinations vertically from above, while mere religion is never more than a part of the system of humanities, and all two humanities set up from below. The argument may seem impressive as a catastrophe theological intensification of the situation, after 1918, but as a description of the overall situation it would be misleading, for modernity is simply not known for being a time in which God shows himself vertically to humans. This century the earth was struck by meteorites, plummeting down from the outermost and highest places, but there were no gods among them. Had Barth's claim been true, he would have been right in his resolute enmity towards all natural theologies. He would have had good reason to discard any derivation of religion from the structures of consciousness, and likewise any dissolution of Christianity into enlightened ethics. The reason why his thesis was wrong becomes evident upon closer inspection of the vertically from above motif. We know from the phenomena described above that the entire complex of verticality and modernity is revised into a new version that permits a deeper understanding of the emergence of embodied improbability. Barth, however, did not participate sufficiently in its developments. He fell prey to the error that theologians are ex officio constrained to make, simply co-opting the dimension of vertical tension for the call from above in its Christian decoding. Nonetheless, Barth must be considered the most important recent observer of verticality after Nietzsche. He succeeded in producing a new presentation of Christian doctrine that 
presupposes the absolute precedence of God's self-representation. This means that the situation of humans can only be understood in the steepest vertical terms. The true God is the one who uncompromisingly overtaxes humans, while the devil meets them at their own level. Even Barth, however, did not deny the existence of religions when he contrasted them with the non-religion of Christianity. He missed the fact that the former were no more religions than his favoured Christian brand. Whether Christian or non-Christian, all of them are both materially and formally nothing other than complexes of inner and outer actions, symbolic practice systems, and protocols for regulating traffic with higher stressors and transcendental powers. In short, forms of anthropotechnics in the implicit mode. They are constructs which, for purely pragmatic reasons, initially out of Roman Christian opportuneness, then later due to Protestant confessional polemics and enlightened systematics, were given the name religio, a term dragged along from the millennium of Latinity, referring back both compulsively and arbitrarily to the language games and cultic pursuits of Roman state bigotry. What religio, literally reverence, meant for the Romans before St. Augustine, took the word out of their mouths and spoke of vera religio, can best be learned from a detail. That some of the most important Roman legions were allowed to bear the honorific pia fidelis, on the model of the legio tertia augusta, stationed in North Africa, which existed from the middle of the 1st century BC to the 4th century AD, as well as the Legio Prima Adiutrix, based first on Mainz and later in Pannonia, which existed from Nero's day until the middle of the 5th century. Owing to Christian alterations of meaning, Caesar's piously faithful followers became the legionaries of Christ, known in French as Fidèles to this day. Recalling Pierre de Corbaton's Neo-Olympism, and Ron Hubbard's Church of Scientology raises several questions. What is religion anyway, if the people next door can simply found one? What does religion mean if a Hellenophile educator with a taste for men's bodies in battle, and a beaming smart aleck, known until then mainly as the author of cunning space crime novels, believed, in all seriousness and unseriousness, that they had called into existence one before our eyes? Would that not mean that the safest, safest method of exposing all religions is to found one's own? What do we learn about religion in general by studying the blueprints of newly founded cults and observing their modus operandi in the long-term activities? Naturally, these questions do not only arise with the two examples highlighted here. They could equally validly be directed at every one of the many recent religious experiments that have drawn attention to themselves since the French Revolution. From the cult of the Supreme Being, founded in 1793 via Saint-Simonism, Auguste Comte's sociological religion, Mormonism, Theosophy and Anthroposophy, to the makeshift neo-Hindu cults and manifold networks of psychotechnic sects spanning the globe today.
all these enterprises already came about under the eyes of the Enlightenment and could have been studied in vivo and in vitro if there had been corresponding interest in doing so with the suitable optics and methods. As far as de Courbaton's neo-Olympism is concerned, its history has been recounted sufficiently often, most recently on the occasion of the centenary celebrations for the modern Olympic Games in 1996, for there to be no need for me to re reproduce more than some rudimentary aspects here. Three sources and elements of de Courbaton's sport religious system have also been amply acknowledged. They can be found in John Ruskin's Gymno-Philosophical Ideas on Eurythmics, in Dr. Brooks' Neo-Hellenistic Olympic Games in Shropshire, held from the mid-19th century on, and in Wagner's Bayreuth Festival, where the archetype of a modern elitist communitary edification cult was taken up in its full articulation. 6,000 foot away from everyday industrial life and class divisions. Some have also referred to the inspiring effect of the Parisian Exposition Universelle in 1889 in order to explain the transfer of the totalizing impulse. Viewed in this light, Olympism appears as a timely globalization of sport and action. The famous Sorbonne Congress of 1894 for the reinstatement of the Olympic Games had already gathered these ingredients together, augmented by de Coubertin's own socio-therapeutic and pedagogical motifs to form an effective mixture. De Coubertin recounts in his memoirs that at the opening session at the Sorbonne in 16th of June, Gabriel Fauré's Hymn to Apollo uh, op 63 for voice, harp, flute and two clarinets. Specially composed for the occasion and based on an inscription found shortly beforehand at the Athenian treasury at Delphi, was premiered before 2,000 enchanted listeners. Quote, A subtle feeling of emotion spread throughout the auditorium, as if the antique eurythmy were coming to us from the distant past. In this way, Hellenism infiltrated into the whole vast hall. At the same time, the Paris Congress laid down the fundamental aspects of the games and the organization carrying them. The four-year rhythm, which would create a temporal structure for all future times like a neo like a new religious calendar the enlightened dictatorship of the IOC presidency, later consolidated by the election of de Coubertin as a president for life. Modernism in the definition of sport, equality of different sports, exclusion of children, the principle of circulating games, amateurism, which remained controversial, however, and was suspended in 1976, internationalism, and the principle of Pax Olympica. Furthermore, Athens was chosen as the location of the first games and Paris as that of the second in order to draw sufficient attention to their birthplace and their place of rebirth. 
Little did those in charge know that the Paris Olympics of 1900 would be the low point in the history of Olympism. They were barely noticed alongside the simultaneous Exposition Universelle. The lesson from this was that the two world festivals at the same time are not feasible. The first Olympic Games of the modern age were held in Athens a mere two years later, with great ceremony, under the patronage of the King of Greece. As a purely andrological festival, for the enthusiastic baron had a famously low opinion of women's sports, he wanted the female role in the Games to be restricted to handing the winner the olive branch, or placing the wreath on his head. To Cobotin's failure to establish his tachyat mulier in arena, was only the first of many in the practical realisation of his muscle religion. One of the most far-reaching consequences of the first games was that, thanks to the donation of a major patron, the Pan-Athenaic Stadium of Athens, from the time when Greece was a Roman province, could be restored and used again. This initiated the stadium and arena renaissance of the 20th century, which is still producing ever new event architectures, based on ancient primary forms to this day. Even the monks of Mount Athos supposedly contributed money to the Olympic subscription, as if following the revelation that in distant Athens the modern replicas of their own blurred archetypes were entering the stage again. Had the first monks of Eastern Christianity not called themselves the Athletes of Christ, and joined forces in the training camps called Asketeria, The notable and unforeseen climax of the Athenian Games was the first marathon. The idea for this from, came from the French classical scholar and Hellenophile Michel Boyart, who, at the closing banquet of the Sorbonne Conference, had praised the establishment of a marathon trophy for the first winner in the new discipline. When the victor of the race, a 23-year-old Greek shepherd by the name of Spiridion Lewis, entered the shining white marble stadium on 10th of April, April 1896, wearing the fustanella, the traditional dress, the winning time was given as 2 hours, 58 minutes and 50 seconds, a state came about that it would scarcely be adequate to call exceptional. It was as if a new form of energy had been discovered, a form of emotional electricity, without which the way of life in the subsequent era would no longer be imaginable. What happened that scorching afternoon in the Pan-Athenaic Stadium at around five o'clock must be classed as a new kind of epiphany, a previously unknown category, the gods of the moment, introduced itself into the modern audience, gods that require no proof because they only exist for the duration of their manifestation and are not believed in, experienced. In that hour, a new chapter in the history of enthusiasm was opened, and whoever is unwilling to speak of this history must remain silent about the 20th century. The Greek crown princes ran the last metres of the race alongside the athlete, amid the ecstatic cheering of almost 70,000 people. After he had crossed the finishing line, they carried him aloft before the king, who had stood up from his stadium throne. Had one wanted to prove that a new age of inverted hierarchies had begun, this would have provided the most spectacular evidence. 
For a moment, an athletic shepherd became king over the king. For the first time, one could witness the majesty, indeed the power of the monarch being transferred to the runner. In later decades, there was even a growing feeling that shepherds and their ilk were striving to rule the country alone. A sustained wave of rapture swept over the whole country. An enthusiastic barber promised to shave the victor for free for the rest of his life. An olive branch and a silver medal were the official marks of honour, and these were followed by a flood of gifts. It is still unclear how Spiridion Lois acquired the necessary stamina. The shepherd boy had supposedly worked for an officer as a messenger or water carrier, and become accustomed to long distances as a result. In a test, in a test run, two weeks before the games, he had come fifth. He would hardly ever have encountered the word training until then. I take that as supporting my hypothesis that most varieties of practice behaviour take the form of undeclared asceticisms. For the brothers on Mount Athos, it may have seemed like a confirmation of their intuitions when, not long afterwards, the rumour began to circulate that the runner had spent the night prior to the race in prayer before icons. Even de Coubertin took this information seriously enough to begin reflecting on the mental and spiritual components of the greatest sporting achievements. Like Friedrich Nietzsche, Karl Hermann Unthen, and Hans Wurz, the founder of the Games was also convinced that the will ultimately leads to success and victory. De Coubertin, therefore, made no secret of his aversion to the positivism of sports physicians who were too philistine in their thinking to grasp the higher dimensions of sport in general, and the new movement in particular. Pierre de Coubertin believed that what he was invoking under the name of Olympism would amount to no less than a fully valid new religion. He thought that he could support this view by drawing on the religious embedding of the ancient games. During their thousand-year existence, they had always been held coram deus. In fact, they only took place before the gods, but also with their approval, perhaps even their participation, insofar as one can interpret the victories of athletes in the stadium and the palaestra as events that never took place without the consent of the divine. And why not their intervention too? De Coubertin's yet-to-be-created religion of the athlete did not follow on directly from Greek mythology, however. The founder of the games was too educated not to know that the gods of Hellenism are dead. Its point of departure was the modern art religion of the Wagnerian variety, which had been conceived as a sacred act to reconcile the torn society of the day. As every complete religion has an ordained clergy alongside its dogma and rituals, its embodiment became the function of the athletes. It was they who would administer the muscular sacraments to the ecstatic masses. This is my body, my struggle, my victory. Thus, de Coubertin's Olympic dream unified romantic Grecophilia, as well as the pedagogical pathos of the 19th century, with the aesthetic heathendom of the body cult to form an amalgam that would meet modern standards. What de Coubertin expected from an effective new religion can be seen in a memoir note 
on a visit to the Boyrite Festival. Here he draws parallels between the two seemingly disparate spheres. Quote, Music and sport have always been the most perfect isolators, the most fruitful aids to reflection and vision, as well as powerful stimuli like massage of the will, encouraging me to persevere. In fact, after a period of difficulties and perils, all immediate worries were suddenly removed. End quote. With the notable word isolator, de Coubertin points to the ability of religion to divide reality into ordinary and extraordinary situations. Wherever one finds sport and music, therefore, one also finds religion, insofar as their key characteristic, the effect of transcending everyday life and eliminating worries, is present. If one develops the term isolator further, one arrives at the following statement. That which brings about an exceptional state is religious. For de, for de Coubertin, religion is the attainment of the other condition by sporting means. Here begins one of the paths leading to event culture. As is customary for threshold states, these means must simultaneously be released and kept under control. The fully developed athlete's religion would have to carry out both tasks. The athletic exercises prepare the exceptional state in the competitions, and the stadium cult steers the mounting arousal in the prescribed directions. In the isolator of Boyroyd, de Coubertin realised once and for all why nothing short of a newly founded religion could do justice to his intentions. Like Richard Wagner, he wanted to propel people out of their ordinary lives for a few incommensurable moments before releasing them back into the world transformed, elevated and purified. De Coubertin found an affirmation of his basic position in the esoteric climate of the Wagner festival. Just as the boldest form of art religious offer was at home in Boyroyd, the analogous manifestation of sport religion would find its base in Olympism. Comparable to a 19th century Malraux, de Coubertin declared that the 20th century would be Olympic or would not be at all. Against this background, one can understand in what sense the success story of the Olympic idea was simultaneously the failure story of de Coubertin's original aims. However one chose to interpret Olympism, it is clear that it resulted in anything but the triad of sport, religion and art that de Coubertin wanted to transpose from antiquity to the modern age. His failure as the founder of a religion can be summed up quite simply. He had called into being a system of exercises and disciplines that was perfect for refuting the existence of religion as a separate category of human action and experience. What in fact came about, and became ever more solid in its consistency, was an organisation for the stimulation, guidance, care and management of primarily thymotic, pride and ambition based, and secondarily erotic, greed and libido based, energies. The former were by no means restricted to the athletes, 
but were equally present among the newly created functionaries without whom the new cult could not be put into action. For them, the indispensable parasites of sport, this was the start of a golden age, because the Olympic movement spontaneously followed the most important of all organisational secrets, to create as many functions and honorary offices as possible, in order to guarantee the thymotic mobilisation of the members and their pragmatic binding to the sublime cause. To Coboton, who liked to move in old aristocratic circles, had nonetheless realised that modernity is the era of the nouveau riche, and the nouveau important. For the latter in particular, his movement was an ideal field of activity, as well as the ambition and political incentives. Grige-related rewards were not neglected. Olympism produced many new fortunes, some resulting from the direct flow of donations from applying cities into the bank accounts of IOC members. The pragmatic foundation for both forms of incentive was provided by the clubs, the natural matrices of sporting exercises, and the alliances between trainers and the practising. They experienced their most impressive presentation in the competitive games themselves. The time was clearly right for this order of disciplines. If the age belongs to the competitive economy, then competitive sport is the zeitgeist itself. The overall outcome of de Coubertin's efforts, then, could not have been more ironic. He failed as a religious leader because he exceeded every foreseeable level of success as the initiator of a practice and competition movement. The initiator of the games missed what became the alpha and omega for the next generation functionaries in their further undertakings. The glaringly obvious fact that the Olympic idea would only survive as a secular cult without a serious ideological superstructure. The small elements of fairness pathos, youth ceremony and internationalism that had to be kept as a matter of form could also be summoned up without a great lifting of souls. Often enough a mere wink was all that remained of de Coubertin's noble pacifism among his pragmatic heirs. The games had to integrate themselves amid the excesses of mass culture, changing into a profane event machine more resolutely at every repetition. On no account should they present themselves too loftily, least of all with the Catholic or offer theological trait that characterised de Coubertin's approach. Where higher things could not entirely be avoided, as in the obligatory opening celebration, they would go no further than the ceremonious entrance of the athletes, the hymn, the flame, and the appeal to the youth of the world. The post-war games in Antwerp in 1920 featured for the first time a separate high mass in the cathedral, with a chilling moment when the names of Olympic icons killed in the war were read out. The Olympic idea never had a chance as a heathen form of religion, of offer from above. Disenchanted into an athlete summit, it became an irresistible magnet for the masses. The pragmatic turn did not even demand of its protagonists a betrayal of de Coubertin's vision. It was entirely sufficient not to comprehend the old man's lofty intentions. 
Soon, no one knew anymore what his dream of a religious synthesis of Hellenism and modernity had once meant. It is no exaggeration to say that the Olympic idea triumphed because its followers at all levels, from the board members of the IOC to the local clubs, had soon lost any inkling of it, even when tears were flowing at the presentation ceremony. The valiant Willi Daum, who, as long-standing chairman of the German National Olympic Committee, had access to the sources, could only shake his head about the ideational motives of the Olympic cause. Referring to the religion of the athlete, he notes in flawless functionaries' prose, here things become slightly confused. Through its despiritualization, the Olympic movement of the 20th century shows how a religion can spontaneously regress to the format of its true substance. The anthropotechnic basis is embodied by a graduated system of exercises and diversified disciplines, integrated into a superstructure of hierarchized administrative acts, routinized club relationships, and professionalized media representations. None of the structural characteristics of an elaborated religion remain except for the hierarchy of functionaries and a system of exercises that, in keeping with their secular nature, are referred to as training units. The only function of the IOC Vatican in Lausanne is to administer the fact that God is Olympically dead too. In this respect, one can say that the religion of the athlete is the only phenomenon in the history of faith that disenchanted itself by its own means. Only a few intellectual strains of Protestantism in Europe and the USA have achieved anything comparable. As a non-religion longed for by countless people, the athletic renaissance was able to spread over large parts of the world. Its development shows the change from a zeal into an industry. Small wonder that the young science of sport showed no interest in becoming the theology of this cult movement, which had barely been founded before its spirit was driven out. But the response among anthropologists was also reserved. To this day, they are interested neither in the artificial tribes of professional athletes, nor in the fact that the emergence of the sport functionaries marked the appearance of a new subspecies no less deserving of attention than Aurignacian man. There is no stronger example in 20th century of the tendency towards a phenomenon I have mentioned several times, namely the despiritualization of asceticisms, than the Olympic movement. As far as the opposing tendency is concerned, the worldly appropriation of the spiritual, the Church of Scientology, founded by the novelist and DIY psychologist L. Ron Hubbard, is just one example among, among many, but an outstandingly informative one. In the following, I would like to honour the inventor of Dianetics as one of the greatest enlighteners of the 20th century, as he decisively increased our knowledge about the nature of religion, even if largely involuntarily. He earned himself a place in the pantheon of science and technology, as he successfully performed a psychotechnic experiment whose results were significant for culture as a whole. 
after Hubbard, it is clear once and for all that the most effective way of showing that religion does not exist is to establish one's own. Whoever wishes to found a religion can essentially operate on one of two assumptions. The first is that many religions already exist, but the true one is not among them. Now, new insights have finally made it possible and necessary to call it into existence. Christianity followed this schema to set itself apart from Judaism, just as Augustine did the same in relation to Manichaeism and the Roman cult, and even later, Muhammad drew the line between Islam and its two monotheistic predecessors. An analogous approach was taken by the Enlightenment thinkers, who wanted to found the religion of reason from the 17th century onwards by breaking away from the historical religions. Such initiatives seek to draw authority from the progressive disclosure of the truth, which dictates the content for which the suitable form then has to be found. The new content lies in a message that, so the founders believe, holds more salvific power than previously known cults. One can therefore call this type of religion founding content religious. Its protagonists are usually naive, in a value-free sense of the word. They think they believe that they believe what they believe. If they are not naive, they would like to be, and regret their weakness of faith. The wiser among the weak of faith elevate doubt itself to an organ of faith for an ascetologically plausible reason. Chronic doubt is the most effective exercise for keeping alive that which is doubted. The second assumption under which a new religion can be started is that the previous religions are inadequate because they cling too much to their content, whereas in future the concern will rather be to foreground the form or mood of religion. This turn towards the formal side involves a dramatic bifurcation. The first option is for the new religion to be born as a free-floating meta-religion that no longer knows any dogmatic precepts, yet wants to preserve the dimension of the religious in itself, bona fide, in a content-neutral form. This is roughly what is done by most modern confessionless people, who believe that there might be something after all in the thing they do not believe in. The advantage of this position is that it diffuses the tensions between salvific knowledge and secular knowledge, between theology and ethics. Romantic Protestantism had already approached the self-dissolution of positive religion in polyvalent emotional culture, as is evident when Schleiermacher states in his second speech on religion, quote, It is not the person who believes in a holy scripture who has religion but rather he who requires none and could probably make one himself. Or the new religion could exclusively take the formal side of the religion to convey foreign content. This was the case with Pierre de Coubertin, among others, who wanted to tie the content of sport to the form of religion, with the results discussed above. If one goes a step further along the form-religious path, it becomes apparent how religion can be employed as a mere vehicle to realise alien content mala fide. The political theologies, whereby the political theologies whereby religion is used as a psychosocial support system for state success, 
and which are once more enjoying considerable attention, are the inescapable example of this. To clarify this attitude through examples, one need only think of popes who enlarge the church state while leading their troops, or French cardinals who formed alliances with the Muslim Turks to harm the Christian rulers of Austria. In both distant and recent times, entire peoples and nations have also appeared in the guise of religious communities. The empirical political reality of the 20th century illustrates to the point of overkill how revolutionary movements can garnish themselves with messianic trappings, as if the activists had wanted to give the lie to Friedrich Engels' careless claim from 1844 that, quote, all the possibilities of religion are exhausted, end quote. As soon as the form religious view becomes radicalised, the abstraction progresses to the point where any content can potentially take on a religioid design if the content provider so desires. Religion then appears as a rhetorical ritual mode and an immersion procedure that can serve any project, be it political, artistic, industrial, sporting or therapeutic, as a medium of self-distribution. It can very easily be transferred back to old content-based religions. In the following I will show how Lafayette Ron Hubbard's entrepreneurial and literary rabulistic genius drew profit from the form religious principle in its most abstract manifestation during the promotional campaign for a product called Dianetics in 1950 only to convert it soon afterwards into the Scientological Church through a religioid upgrading. The starting point for Hubbard's campaign lies in the cultural crisis of the late 1940s, which also marked a period of personal setbacks for the author. At the time, he could presume a market for life counselling and self-help literature with considerable growth potential, and a tangle of psychoanalytical, life-philosophical, pastoral, business consulting, psychagogic, religioid, dietary and fitness psychological motifs. Hubbard's ingenious approach consisted in bringing all these forms of demand together into a single point. He placed himself in the tradition of modern charlatans, taking this word too in a value-free sense, who seek to combat all illnesses with a single medicine, or all problems with one solution. One can observe this habitus in countless concrete forms between the 16th and 20th centuries. From the zero-point thought of modern philosophy to the political idea of total revolution, according to the great charlatans, the art of arts has always been to distill the one essence, the panacea, the universal agent, regardless of whether this is carried out in physical or moral flasks. As a rule, the distillation produces a simple substance, a final element, or a simple action and a final operation. Whoever has it, or is capable of it, has and is capable of everything. Hubbard's product was conceived of as a mental panacea and brought into the agitated life counselling market. At first glance, his Dianetics of 1950 seemed to be no more than a new method, praised with much to do, 
to clean the misted window panes of our consciousness. A product, to be sure, whose already conspicuously high sales in the first year proved that five years after the first atomic bombs fell, a large number of Americans were prepared to follow spiritual and intellectual suggestions for the simplest solution to the world's problems. There was no time left for complicated esoteric systems, the author announced. One had to change the world from the ground up, rapidly enough to make sure that the bomb did not beat everyone to it. Survival had become the watchword of life counselling. It forms the American counterpart to early Christian metanoia in the face of time running out. Against the background of the incipient nuclear arms race between the USA and the Soviet Union, Dianetics initiated an alternative course of the world, between itself and the world system of war, mental illness and crime. Confronted with such a scenario, who would have refused to join the camp of those who claimed self-assuredly that they had the solution to the world's problems? The solution lies in the name of the method. The word Dianetics supposedly comes from two Greek components, dia, through, and nous, mind, and denotes the science of what happens, quote-unquote, through the mind. Occasionally a word such as dianua is also named as a source, though unfortunately this does not exist in Greek. One can intuit the point, namely that everything happens through the mind, through the precise sense of through, though the precise sense of through remains unclear. One cannot yet tell how the system reworks the old contrast between mind and matter. Scientifically on the surface, and gnostically in its deep structure. Dispensing with false modesty, Hubbard's new hypermethod presents itself as the modern science of mental health, and promises to offer the simplest solution to all problems that had hitherto seemed insoluble. Like a Californian avatar, of Johann Gottlieb Fichte, Hubbard praises his science of knowledge as ending the era of mere preliminary attempts. While traditional solutions in turn became part of the problems, whether they presented themselves as religions, philosophies, therapies or politics, Dianetics proclaims the solution to all problems in a definitive clarity. This solution, we are assured, will not end up drifting to the problem side again, which is why none but malicious and mentally disturbed people could have any interest in the prevention of Dianetics. This provides, from now on, a new criterion for the rapid diagnosis of psychopathic dispositions, indifference or hostility to the offers of Dianetics. A disproportionate polemic against what Hubbard called conventional psychiatry is a running thread through his entire work and that of his students. He undoubtedly knew what experts would say about him and his activities. He made them pay dearly for his intuitions. As far as its actual content goes, Dianetics initially offers no more than a simplified and technified variation on the basic assumptions of psychoanalysis. It merely replaces Freud's distinction between the system, or field states of conscious-unconscious, with Hubbard's distinction between the analytical mind, with its clear memory bank, and the reactive mind, with its pathological memory bank. 
The latter holds the sum of all problems, while the former offers the solution to all problems. With this starting situation, it seems like the natural task of the analytical mind to clear up the reactive mind until only clear ideas are left. Whoever managed to empty their pathological store would bring about the sole dominion of the analytical mind and could thenceforth call themselves clear. All processing follows the maxim that wherever there was a reactive mind, there will now be an analytical one. The task of Dianetic procedures is no less than the production of the clear. They lead clients, regardless of their specific ailments, along inner time tracks and back to the engrams of their pathological memory, often with locks on the pathogenic stores that must first be opened. This takes place on the more or less fantastic assumption that the old engrams can be erased through recall and the aberrations that have caused and the aberrations they have caused eliminated. An assumption that had already been popularised by psychoanalysis and Alfred Hitchcock in Hubbard's early days, although it never managed to achieve more than pseudo-plausibility. If this were all there is to say about Hubbard's approach, one could content oneself with the conclusion that Dianetics is more or less amusing chapter in the epic of the Americanization of psychoanalysis. This epic relates how the partisans of ego psychology took advantage of the psychology of the unconscious, or how the healthy soul of the esoteric West Coast triumphed over the morbid psyche of the East Coast. In truth, however, the Dianetics Scientology episode belongs to a broader intellectual historical moment. Excuse me. Belongs to a broader intellectual historical movement that. I would like to term the techno-gnostic turn in Western psychology. This is characterised by a new wholesale defamiliarisation of mankind's store of mental and spiritual traditions. The distortive energy comes from a technology historical event that must be viewed as the greatest caesura since the implementation of vowel alphabetical scripts around 700 BC the advent of computer culture. Its unfolding around the middle of the 20th century forced a revision of the time-honoured mind-body dichotomy by showing, through the construction of computers or mind machines, that many of the phenomena one had previously attributed to the mind and soul side of the totality of being in fact belonged on the mechanical material side. Reflection is a property of matter, not a privilege of human intelligence. Since then, the redistribution of the world under the pressure of the new cybernetic centre has defined the drama of contemporary thought. In this process, it becomes clear why idols fall. The philosophy of cybernetics renders it possible to formulate a general theory of twilights of the gods. The Hubbard phenomenon unmistakably belongs to the turbulences set off by the eruption of cybernetics into the domains of metaphysical classicism. As a contemporary of the first generation of cybernetics, and an author of science fiction novels, viewed not entirely unfavourably by connoisseurs of that genre, he had the advantage of privileged early access to the new world of inner technologies. 
one should take care to avoid the fallacy that Hubbard's former life in science fiction was something negative. Gotthard Gunther, still the most significant philosophical commentator on the event of the computer, has argued convincingly that the science fiction novel should be viewed as the laboratory for the philosophy of the technical age, a claim that seems entirely legitimate if one considers the work of authors like Stanislaw Lem and Isaac Asimov, to name only the greatest. There is every indication that the novelist Hubbard never abandoned his original genre, he merely expanded it. Showing great consistency, his first step beyond the confines of science fiction led him to Dianetics, which, in its cognitive status, is nothing other than psychology fiction. This is in keeping with the accounts of those close to him that Hubbard wrote his 500-page book Dianetics in Bayhead, New Jersey, in a mere month, and completely off the top of his head without drawing on any scientific research. The experimental foundation he invokes, quote-unquote, hundreds of case studies, is itself part of the invention. This observation casts a retroactive light on the systems of Freud and C.G. Jung. Once one has grasped the schema of psychology fiction in its outlines, one also recognises its characteristics in the alternative versions. In the present context, Hubbard's second step is essentially instructive. The movement that expanded the psychology fiction of Dianetics into the religion fiction of Scientology. Observing the transition, one witnesses the debut of the religion of the technical age. When the success of Hubbard's book, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, sent him the message from the real world that applied fiction works, he took this as the go-ahead for his ambitions. With the same élan that had carried him towards the first expansion of science fiction's boundaries, he performed the second, and opened, after the psychotherapeutic front, the religious one. The response from the real world showed that this time too it had worked. The religion fiction materialised in a very short time and took the form of an actually existing church. There was an unmistakable element of taking the bull by the horns at work, as Hubbard had reason to fear the reaction of the organised medical profession after the disproportionate success of his self-help therapy book. To the extent that the establishment denied that his magical methods were in any way effective, and accused him of dealing irresponsibly with the hopes of the suffering, many of them incurable, it seemed natural to flee to the immunity of the religious sphere. Incidentally, it was never a secret in the inner organisational circle of the time that the ecclesiastical camouflage of the new anti-professional healing method was simply a way of misleading the tax authorities. When Hubbard developed the Church of Scientology in 1954, he applied the form religious strategies. He surrounded the profane content of Dianetics, registered trademark, and later of Hubbard books, Hubbard speeches, Hubbard counselling techniques, etc., with the apparatus of sacred techniques typically found in religion. Its basis is a founder cult without boundaries. The celebration of the master as the awakener of humanity runs through the entire media sphere of Scientology. 
It constitutes one of the most airtight systems of self-praise in recent intellectual history. Like a space station, it recycles its own system-inherent operating data. This was augmented by a sharp propaganda of urgency. Urgency. The strategic version of the apocalyptic. It explained to clients that the only choice was between Scientology and suicide. This ensured total immersion in Hubbard's theme park. In addition, the sect created countless internal functional roles, such as auditors, registrars, ethics officers, and a wealth of new importances in the form of supervisory and regulatory tasks. The imaginative replicas of a church hierarchy, as well as institutes, business centres, clinics, and even colleges where one could acquire heterodox academic titles, including Doctor of Theology. One can hardly say that no provision was made in this far-sighted enterprise for the newly important and those who wanted to join them. Internal communications were refined through the introduction of an insider language whose use gave the divide between members and non-members the desired depth. A system of mutual regulations stabilised the business. The discreet observation of members for an early diagnosis of scepticism rounded off the package of church-imitating measures. The design of the Scientological community was also original. The intention was that each new believer would also be a new customer. One has to go back to the Catholic trading of indulgences in the 16th century to find a similarly close and elegant connection between salvific and monetary transactions. Hubbard already deserves the greatest acknowledgement for these achievements in the recreative reconstruction of the church phenomenon alone, as his form religious imitation procedure provided valuable insight into the general conditions of religion founding, whether historically grown or currently synthesized. The loss of aura in his artifact of religion clearly did not worry him. What the new church lacked in venerability, it balanced out through the carefreeness with which it presented itself as the summit of humanity's quest for truth that had been conquered late, but still in time. Scientological theology candidly allows the religious founders of the past to look up to him, the finisher. Buddha, Lao Tzu, Jesus, Muhammad, but also authors such as Aristotle, Kant, Schopenhauer, Freud, Bergson, and whoever else is entitled to candidacy in the colourful list of precursors. All of them can rejoice that Hubbard has completed what they could only strive for with inadequate means. A certain dharma is also said to have been very close to the truth in days gone by, supposedly an Asian monk of antiquity. Evil to him who evil thinks. After all, does the New Testament not also contain details that do not stand up to historical criticism? I am not sure one can claim that Hubbard was attempting with his less successful claims, to show that a complete church should also include signs of its own fallibility. The question of whether Hubbard wanted to go beyond psychology fiction and religion fiction and create a form of politics fiction will remain unanswered here. 
Depending on one's attitude and mood, one can take the corresponding statements by the master, especially the notorious equation of democrats and apes, either as dadaistic or as pre-fascistic. There is a paradistic quality that runs through the entire spectrum of scientological themes and leaves nothing that Hubbard ever touched unchanged or untwisted. Whatever symbolic traditions he appropriated reappeared as technically repeatable phenomena. Clearly nothing is more suited to translation into the universe of technical images than religion, as it aims by definition for the production of special effects. Hubbard's achievements as a parodist of religion were outstanding, not least as a parodist of the hierarchical principle. Recall his amusing operating Thetan, levels 1 to 8, but also as a parodist of the mystical idea that the soul, now Thetan, recognises God within its innermost self. The insight that fragile psyches can be replaced by high-class Thetan implants would itself have earned Hubbard a Nobel Prize. Scientology's way of dealing with its apostates is also of great parodistic value. Here, the classic condemnation of infidels is travestied in the systematic molestation of ex-Thetans. This would be even more comical were it not for the fact that it meant subjecting their targets to vicious psychological terror. The old missionary cults followed the principle that one wins over the people by converting the king. Translated into modern terms, this means that one must first of all court celebrities. With the help of these techniques, Hubbard managed to establish an intellectual historical Las Vegas based on quotations without boundaries in a few decades. He led the church into an age of its technical producibility. Unease in the face of this complex of compromising imitations may be one of the reasons why followers of the original religions prefer to avoid it. The attention of the organs of German intelligence to the ambiguous organisation is all the greater, however, in the USA. The FBI had it in their sights for a time. Its suspicious appearance is a consequence of its design, as it almost openly displays its principle of production. This has to be the case, as Scientology offers the model for the form-religious staging of foreign content. In April 2007, the European Court of Human Rights confirmed the right of Scientology, despite its sometimes dubious and at times even manifestly criminal economic activities, to prevent it present itself as a religious community. This verdict merits the closest attention, because it is a disturbing indication of the increasing illiteracy of our legal system in religious matters. Despite all appearances, it does not contain any statement about the religious quality of the enterprise. It merely points out the inalienable right of every person to avow a functioning fiction. The judges took the Scientological organization's claim of pursuing spiritual, religious and humanistic goals at face value. On closer inspection, the Strasbourg verdict was no more than a statement by the court about itself, in that it declared questions of parity outside its jurisdiction. A similar logic applies to airport security staff, who are categorically obliged to prevent a joker claiming to have a bomb in his hand luggage from entering the departure zone. 
One cannot, after all, expect them to take such statements anything but literally. It is thus decreed by the Supreme Court. In our time, all that is required to be a religion is for a business to claim that it is one. A religion... <clears throat> a person with religion in their hand luggage can proceed to the gate. It did not occur to the judges that Jesus himself would not have been able to sue for recognition as a religious founder of the European Court of Human Rights because he did not know the word religion. Nor was the concept of human rights available to Jesus. Least of all, the inviolable right of modern people to the free cultivation of illusions. The Strasbourg judges did not realise how close they were to Hubbard. If he could found a religion, they could allow one. At least the judges, assuming they were no undercover Scientologists among their ranks, attempted to pass judgment in good faith, while Hubbard knowingly built his church on an abyss of ironies. In addition, the Scientology lawyers have been working for decades on transforming the legal systems of their host countries into locations for jurisprudence fiction, with impressive success. Without the taste for lawsuits among American lawyers, whose effects also reach across to Europe, it is clear that Scientology would long have disappeared from the market. My conclusion from this dispute over the religious status of the psychotechnic group is that it proves once and for all that religion does not exist. If one looks to the heart of the fetish of religion, one finds exclusively anthropotechnic procedures. And this applies analogously to the second large-scale fetish of the present, quote-unquote, culture. The word religion, both here and elsewhere, represents two things. Inwardly, it is a password to unlock the more yielding zones of the psyche, those in danger of exploitation. And outwardly, it is a badge that one shows in order to be admitted to the world of the respectable semblance. In the context of a genetic theory of culture, one would call this effect pseudo-transcendence. It comes about as soon as the origins of mental fabrications disappear behind a veil of ignorance, and are created by clients as a venerable legacy. As one can see, a few years are now sufficient to create pseudo-transcendent effects. In summary, we can say that the indirectly enlightening dynamic of Hubbard's Scientological doctrine, and even more the instructive implications of his organisational art, are connected to the unprecedented shamelessness of his eclecticism. In this, Hubbard dwarfs even Rudolf Steiner, and God knows, Steiner was no shy man. Hubbard's ruthless drive towards self-establishment shows the signature of his time in so far as it shows, in its way, the transition from the truth of thought to the pragmatics of action. All the Hubbard system knows about what was termed the spirit or soul in tradition is that... Oh, pardon me. All the Hubbard system knows about what was termed the spirit or soul in tradition is that these two must now become sites of survival. In his thought, the principle of survival has pervaded the beyond and subjugated everything that was ever viewed as exceeding physical life spiritually or intellectually. 
Thus, Scientology offers pragmatism from beyond for the world here, and vice versa. In so doing, it provides the metaphysical justification of greed for higher positions in the pyramid game of life. In games of this kind, new members always pay the expenses for the rise of the older members. The circumstance that evil is also directly good, that dangerous insight anticipated by nature has the chance to unfold fully in such games. This is the foundation of the Gnostic irony, where everything is merely a game. In Los Angeles, where Scientology is most deeply anchored, this was translated into the thesis that everything is a film relating to earlier films. The main thing is to be in the producer's camp. If one reduces this religion to its essentials, one finds three irreducible complexes, each of which shows a clear connection to the anthropotechnic dimension. Firstly, on the dogmatic side, a tightly organised, illusion-practising society whose members are impregnated ever more deeply over time with the concepts of the milieu. Then on the psychotechnic side, a set of training instructions for the exploitation of all chances in the transcendent struggle for survival. If one turns finally to the head of the organisation, the last thing one can see is any religious founder. Before us stands a radically ironic, universally flexible business trainer who will stop at nothing and demonstrates to his progeny what techniques one requires to survive in the jungle battle of egotisms. This does not mean, incidentally, that the matter does not occasionally have a strange charm. Even well-meaning and not entirely unintelligent people can find a temporary home there, as long as they firmly resolve to keep their doubts at bay. The quote-unquote willing suspension of disbelief, to quote Coleridge once again, is always the believer's most intimate contribution to the survival of suspicious constructs. In systemic terms, this confirms the rule that a perverse whole can appropriate the relative integrity of its parts without corrupting them entirely. Without this effect, admittedly, the complete religious history of mankind would be unimaginable. To close with an ad personam argument, I would like to note that only three figures in recent intellectual history can be compared to Hubbard from a typological perspective. The Marquis de Sade, the pioneer of philosophy fiction who espoused the release of a sexualized will to power. The Russian faith healer and bohemian monk Rasputin, whose maxim was strength is truth and the British occultist, Alistair Crowley, who spent his life with experiments in malevolence and narcotic excesses, excesses, and claimed to be Satan, the Antichrist, and the Beast of the Apocalypse, whose number is 666. I will not investigate here whether Crowley's games with occult traditions could be taken as a feral version of the rehabilitation of matter, the analogy between black magic and historical materialism is relatively obvious. In this infernal foursome, the youngest member was surely the most successful. According to Hubbard's eldest son, Elron Hubbard Jr., his father was fascinated by Crowley early on. Through one of his pupils, the rocket scientist Jack Parsons of the Californian Institute of Technology, 
he had come into contact with the notorious Ordo Templi Orientis, and had been introduced to black magical ways of thinking. There he supposedly learned that the will is everything and may do anything. From this school he took away the most secret of the illuminations and underpinning his system. Anyone can triumph, no one must die. Whoever wants to become a god can do so in a few sessions. Hubbard knew at first hand that the beast from the deep was speaking through these words. In free translation, the revenge of matter for 3,000 years of misjudgment and resentment. After Crowley's death in 1947, Hubbard supposedly believed that his position was vacant and awaiting a worthy successor. L. Ron Hubbard Jr., a knowledgeable, albeit not entirely neutral witness, also states that his father, with whom he worked together in all areas during the founding years of the church, was a mental and physical wreck from the mid-1960s on, a victim of his own fictions and a casualty of his addiction to drugs and medications. He therefore withdrew to a luxury yacht to hide from his followers, guiding his company from the high seas for many years. During the last years of his life he was caught in his own trap, lost like a prisoner in an exploding fireworks factory, plagued by hypochondria, overcome by fits of rage and filled with the wish to destroy oppressive persons who dared to criticise his work. He withdrew from the public eye to avoid showing his disciples where his methods could lead.